This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. This is a live shot from Global One of the Peace Arch border crossing, where investigators are still on scene hours after a fatal fiery crash. Traffic is flowing once again southbound, but northbound remains closed at this hour. Good evening and thanks for joining us. That crash involved two vehicles and when it happened, it closed the border in both directions for several hours. Witnesses say the driver in a speeding vehicle smashed into a van waiting in line, killing the driver of that vehicle. Jordan Armstrong is at Peace Arch Park with more on how it unfolded and why this might feel like deja vu. Jordan. Yeah, not the first time. There's been a fatal high-speed wreck in the lineup for the Peace Arch. In today's case, investigators have a pretty strong sense of what happened. What they don't know is why. A chaotic scene at the Peace Arch border. The car's in the garden, uh, totally engulfed in flames. At 11.30 a.m., witnesses say a Porsche SUV with Washington plates came screaming towards vehicles lined up for Canada Customs. It's hard to believe that uh, they were able to, to shove that vehicle so far. The Porsche plowed into a Toyota minivan, knocking over a light pole and leaving a trail of debris. Both vehicles ending up several hundred meters away in a flower bed, narrowly missing a gardener on his first day at work. Guy just came pinning it from uh, the U.S. side, and he must have been going like 100, 120. Drove it right into the bed that I was standing in. I jumped and ran out from behind the bed and came back from around the bed and saw that it just, uh, yeah, the van just burst into flames. Bystanders tried to put out the flames, but the heat was too intense. I raced over with a fire extinguisher thinking I could put out a fire, but then I just saw an enormous, it looked like a bomb had gone off. It, it felt like a bomb had gone off, and I realized there was nothing that anyone was going to be able to do. Surrey RCMP confirmed the driver and lone occupant of the minivan died at the scene. As for the driver of the Porsche... I have no information at this time to say that anybody's in custody. Uh, is there any signs of uh, drugs or alcohol impairment in the factor of this accident? I have no information at this time to say what the cause may be of this collision. Our criminal collision investigation team, together with the Lower Mainland Integrated uh, Collision Analyst and Reconstruction Services Department, will be working together to determine what led up to the collision. Not the first time there's been a fiery fatal crash at this location. 21 years ago this month, in virtually the same spot, two Lower Mainland teenagers were killed by a speeding American woman who was eventually found not criminally responsible and given an absolute discharge. The name uh, Peace Arch Park uh, presumes that this is a peaceful area, and it normally is, and it's, it's tragic that now somebody is going to be resting in peace and that uh, this tragedy has happened. 
RCMP have yet to release the identity of the driver of the minivan who was killed. The border was shut down in both directions for a time today. It has reopened to southbound traffic heading into the states. Northbound, they're saying it might reopen around 9 o'clock tonight. For now, drivers heading back to Canada will have to use the truck crossing. Back to you. Thank you, Jordan. And a major fire in Chilliwack had crews busy in that city today. Flames shooting from the roof of Target Steel Sales along 4th Avenue. It took about two hours to knock this fire down. Thankfully, there are no injuries to report here. The cause of the fire, though, is still under investigation. Police have released video surveillance of a hotel robbery that's left an employee badly shaken. Yeah, take a look. This is from early this morning. You can see two masked men entering the Howard Johnson Hotel and Suites on Elk Lake Drive in Saanich. They jumped the counter where the lone employee was working, dragging him off and restraining him. Police say the pair grabbed a substantial amount of cash and took off. A hotel guest heard the calls for help and came to the aid of the employee. If you recognize either of those suspects or have any information that might help, you're asked to call Saanich Police. The mystery surrounding a missing Merritt cowboy is deepening tonight. Ben Tyner was last seen in late January. In a bizarre twist, another ranch worker along the same highway disappeared a few years earlier. Our Catherine Urquhart spoke to that man's family about the coincidence and what a former RCMP officer, now private investigator, is saying about the similarities. A well-respected cowboy vanishes without a trace. His riderless horse found by a hunter. Ben Tyner initially deemed a missing person. Then police say he's likely the victim of foul play. The 32-year-old managed Nicola Lake Ranch on Highway 5A outside Merritt. Highway 5A is linked to another mysterious disappearance one that remains unsolved and is connected to a ranch. Elizabeth Faber's son, Dean Morrison, disappeared five years ago. Then she heard about Ben Tyner. It did hit me in a, in a much more heartfelt way because it was so close to where my son had gone missing. Dean was a painter at Stump Lake Ranch, about 45 kilometers down the highway. Then one day, the 44-year-old was gone. On both sides, yeah. within both sides. Extensive searches turned up nothing, just like the searches for Ben Tyner. And then I started realizing that, uh, you know, they both worked on ranches. They both vanished without a trace, and, and they were both... Um, in the prime of their lives. Faber hired private investigator Dennis Gagnon to help find her son. This is one of my concerns, is it's very open. The former RCMP officer conducted extensive interviews with nearly a dozen people. He believes Morrison met with foul play and has been studying the Tyner case. It may just be a coincidence, and I have to be honest about that. There may be a connection between some associates, we don't know that. So there's a possibility there's a connection between the two of them. The RCMP say they're investigating the cases separately. But Dennis Gagnon has little doubt officers are looking at every possibility. I'm sure they will be looking, because of the location on the Sideway 5A, so I'm sure they're going to look at the similarity of the two cases. Ben Tyner's case remains active. 
Dean Morrison's file also open. Their mysterious disappearances, leaving this community wondering what happened to the two men and why. Catherine Urquhart, Global News, Merritt. There's some startling new information tonight in a dramatic hostage taking from March that ended with two people dead, one of those killed, an innocent victim. The Independent Investigations Office now reveals both the man and the woman died by shots from police. Sarah McDonald has more on the update from investigators and why the victim's relatives regret calling for help. Five weeks after sustained gunfire brought an hours-long standoff in Surrey to a sudden violent ending. They got it. Oh, my God. The province's police watchdog says all evidence indicates the two people killed in that hail of bullets died from injuries inflicted by police weapons. We have determined that the cause of death for the male was multiple gunshot wounds from police, as well as the female died from two gunshot wounds also from police. There probably was a mishap. Something family members of the lone innocent victim taken hostage by her former partner say they've suspected all along. Uh, They really screwed up. They had the layout of the plant, the house. They knew what was going on. Um, I wasn't inside. None of us were. Um, They dropped the ball. Of the two people fatally shot inside this home that day, one was purely a victim and first of domestic violence. Nona McEwen held hostage for some 10 hours by Randy Crossan before being shot. And investigators say by the same officers working to protect her. Yeah, I think they botched the whole thing. Investigators say Crossan pointed a weapon in the direction of police before the pair was fatally wounded, though they're not revealing what it was. The father of McEwen's children believes her blood is on the hands of officers. They said they needed to wait for a search warrant to go in. Why do you need a search warrant when you have a hostage situation? I mean, they smell weed at my house. They're coming inside. Maintaining the incident never should have escalated to the use of deadly force. My nephews lost their mother. Their sister lost their dad and mother. The Independent Investigations Office still working to determine if the actions of the subject officers were lawful. An extensive investigation involving forensics and over 40 statements from witness officers and civilians still ongoing. Sarah McDonald, Global News. The mayor of Coquitlam is blasting Fortis, B.C. over a partially collapsed roadway that's forced the closure of a busy arterial route. The disruption along Como Lake Road comes as Fortis is in the midst of a major infrastructure project replacing 20 kilometers of natural gas line from Vancouver to Coquitlam. Aaron MacArthur is near the site tonight and Aaron, getting around in that area has gone from bad to worse. It's just a small dip in the road, 20 centimeters, less than a foot. But it's causing major delays for drivers on Como Lake and a big rift with the city of Coquitlam. As backhoes continue to rip up the middle of Como Lake, crews are still down in the trench working. Before the road can be repaired, the pipe has to be laid first. And we've now isolated that area and we've um, put backfill in place to stabilize it and we're still assessing what other work needs to be done to fully repair the site. The problem was identified Tuesday by the contractor working on the pipeline. A 20 centimeter slump was detected 
which forced a complete closure of the westbound lane of traffic. Fortis BC had committed to keeping two lanes open, one in each direction, and, and for the next few days anyway, that westbound lane will be closed, so the traffic will all be diverted now to side streets. The city of Coquitlam and Fortis, B.C. have been feuding about this pipeline stretching back to the early design of the project. Fortis had always planned just to leave the old pipe in place. It's a decision that Coquitlam complained to the regulator about. Fortis has essentially told us that if we want the pipe removed, when they're done with it, we, it comes at our cost, not at theirs. The Utilities Commission ruled the pipe would actually be removed at a cost of 50-50, if the old infrastructure interfered with future Coquitlam development. There's pipes and fiber optics and everything going down there. It's our only east-west utility corridor, and we need that space. Construction delays have happened before. A previous section of the project on Mariner Way saw a four-lane road closure after a sinkhole opened up there. Fortis defending the contractor's safety record. There hasn't been any other events such as this on the gas line to date, and that includes the work that happened on East First Avenue last year. At this point, it's unclear how long the repairs will take. Crews expected to work overtime to get the road open as quickly as possible. Sophie? Aaron MacArthur in Coquitlam. Aaron, thank you. Efforts to replace the iconic White Rock Pier face a $2 million funding shortfall. The price tag is just about doubled from initial estimates. Jill Bennett explains why and how the community hopes to raise the money. If you've got $1,000 to spend, you could be the proud new owner of this plank and also be helping to rebuild the White Rock Pier. Even with insurance, potential contributions from other levels of government and dipping into city reserves, there is an estimated shortfall of $2 million. A section of the pier was destroyed in December during a winter storm. The price tag to rebuild it now sits at $16.2 million. So a fundraising campaign has been launched by a new Friends of the Pier group, including things such as celebrity chef events and local breweries. Everyone loves the White Rock Pier and everyone loves beer, so... Uh, combining the two is, uh, is a great way to show support for the community. So it's not just that come and walk the pier, but it is about come and enjoy our backyard, what we have. But how did the price tag to fix the pier double? Early estimates put the work at between 6 and $8 million. The mayor says those figures were incorrect, and it's much more than just replacing what's broken. It won't necessarily be the entire, but it's going to be very, very close to it. There's no sense throwing good money after bad. So if you put in new steel pilings, and then you leave the old wooden ones, and a storm comes along next December and blows it away, really, what have we accomplished? It's clear the 104-year-old pier is an important part of the community. But will people be willing to shell out their own money? I think there would be a lot of people who would be pretty committed to something like that. But I don't believe that private individuals should foot the bill for that. It's outrageous, the amount. We will find the money, make no mistake about it. The pier is set to reopen in August. A decision on whether or not boats will be allowed to moor beside it in the future hasn't been made. Jill Bennett, Global News. Right now, though, after two decades, a B.C. casino supervisor is speaking out, claiming she went to work every day in the mid-90s and early 2000s, expecting to have to deal with organized crime. John Hua spoke to her about the efforts she claims to have made to better protect staff and the response she says she received from casino operator Great Canadian. 
they were a normal part of the casino. They almost became like our co-workers. For more than two years, Muriel Labine, who fearing for her safety, asked that her appearance be concealed. Claims she came into work each day expecting to deal with a criminal clientele. We kept doing business, that was it. The, the staff were, were put in a position where you had to smile and be nice to these gangsters. The former dealer supervisor who worked at Great Canadian between 1992 and 2000 says the introduction of baccarat tables, higher betting limits and longer hours attracted what staff believed was organized crime. I had seen the dealer threatened. I had seen the violence at the outside when I saw the customer getting beaten up. I had seen the bags of money coming in. Labine had even started a journal filled with more than 100 pages of handwritten notes by staff detailing the alleged actions of suspected gangsters and loan sharks they dubbed the boys. I wasn't getting any answers from management, so I went to security, the floor security. That was the first place I heard Big Circle Boys. Fast forward to today, the Big Circle Boys are believed to be at the center of a transnational crime ring. Police have tied to the ongoing fentanyl crisis, casino money laundering, and housing unaffordability, known as the Vancouver model. 20 years ago, Labine claims casino management had a different explanation for staff. The casino was still saying over and over again that they were just friends loaning money to friends. Labine and other staff felt they needed some level of protection. I remember how scared she was. Holly Page, a former organizer with the B.C. Government and Service Employees Union, remembers first meeting a grandmother from the suburbs who she said was afraid for her life. She was extremely worried about what was going on. She was at her wit's end when she came to see us and desperate. Both Labine and Page claimed the casino was extremely proactive against organizing efforts, which granted staff temporary union protection. Labine decided it was time to fold on the job she'd held for nearly eight years. I knew that I was no longer wanting to work in this place, that I could no longer be part of money laundering. I could no longer be part of what I believe was drug money coming across the tables. In an unusual move, Labine, who was by then on stress leave, went straight to great Canadian gaming founder and president, Ross McLeod. In a letter, she asked for a parting settlement no longer able to accept doing business year after year with what most certainly appears to be some level of cooperation with organized crime. My trust and respect disappeared right out the window for this company. A month later, McLeod replied in a letter when it came to what appeared to be illegal activity in our casinos. He had been kept advised on the whole situation since its inception. Something McLeod claimed Great Canadian had informed Labine and the union of many times, in addition to banning unwanted patrons and contacting the proper authorities. He had just verified to me that, yes, I, what we had been saying and talking about was real. McLeod then focused on unionizing efforts, stating that alleged threats to go to the media with concerns about criminal activity unless the union was recognized could be considered extortion. They ignored safety concerns that employees brought to them. They ignored them and said, you just do your job. Today, Great Canadian would not address the details of this letter, only stating, we do not comment on employee matters. 
We are challenged to understand how allegations from 20 years ago provide value. The unionizing effort at the time would eventually fail. Still, Labine says she knew something else had to be done. I was going to speak about a company that I had worked with, worked for for seven and a half years. A moral conflict over a new Coquitlam casino. I went to that hearing with the intention of speaking out about the gangs. What happened that kept this whistleblower quiet for 20 years? John Hua, Global News. Now, these latest developments only strengthen the calls for a public inquiry. The government is expected to make that decision by the end of the month. But as Richard Zussman explains, the political appetite for one is far from universal. In Green Party leader Andrew Weaver's mind, there's only one way to fully find out the extent of money laundering in B.C.'s casinos. We need a public inquiry. The B.C. Green Party renewing calls for that public inquiry on Thursday after these latest reports from Global News. We're getting troubled by the lack of um, movement on this file. I know it's pretty clear British Columbians want a public inquiry. Uh, there are so many questions emerging and uh, they're not getting answered. Weaver's latest concerns stem from allegations that the NDP government in the 1990s made decisions opening the door for money laundering. Mike Farnworth was the minister responsible of gaming at the time, approving higher gambling limits, longer hours and allowing Baccarat, a game now known to attract big money players. At the time, you know, the safeguards that we had in place were felt to be uh, the right safeguards. Uh, as I said, the situation then is significantly different than what we have seen evolve over the last 10, you know, 10, 15 years. The current provincial cabinet, including Mike Farnworth, is now looking at a pair of reports examining money laundering. Those reports will be used to make the final decision on whether an inquiry is needed, and there's no sense yet on how far back an inquiry could potentially look. When you have casinos, uh, they're a cash-based business, they're vulnerable to money laundering, loan sharking, in some cases sex work, other types of exploitation. How governments react to that, uh, what they do to prevent these activities, uh, is the issue that British Columbians are rightly concerned about. The previous German report into money laundering found major concerns at casinos while the B.C. Liberals were in power. But that party's current leader doesn't think an inquiry is the right way to go. Public inquiry won't lead to prosecutions. It'll put it off for years to come. Let's find the bad guys, prosecute them, hopefully convict them and put them in jail. The expectation from government is a decision on whether an inquiry is needed could be made by as early as the end of this month. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. Keith Baldry joins us now live from Victoria with some pretty stunning numbers, Keith. The mm -hmm. spike in casino revenue since the late 1990s is quite dramatic. It is dramatic, Chris, and it's quite startling when you look at the numbers. I mean, it's been said that governments of all stripes have become addicted to gaming revenues. B.C. government certainly no exception. Our graphic artist, Tavis Dunn, put together a pretty good graph uh, showing just what we're talking about. Starts back in 1996, relatively small amount of money coming to the government in terms of gaming revenues, just $284 million. But look at it climb over the years. An average is $70 million a year as that line becomes steeper and steeper until we get to the year 2007. It finally hits the $1 billion mark. 
in terms of money coming back to government. It continues to further climb uh, by a less margin every year, but still climbing to today's total of a whopping $1.4 billion every year. And Chris, and to, to put that in context of where that money is coming from, it's not coming from a huge spike in 649 sales or lottery ticket sales. We're talking about a big increase from casinos and casinos alone. Slot machines and table games now contribute $1 billion to the provincial government when they accounted for just zero back in 1995. It's an astonishing figure, and it's one reason why I think it explains why governments of all stripes have trouble sort of tackling gam gaming because it comes, becomes such an integral and important part of their budget each and every year. Well, David Eby has certainly tried. It'll be interesting to see those numbers in a year's time if it's had any impact. All right, yeah. thanks very much, Keith. A new study from UBC is making a link between an increasingly popular feature of today's hottest video games and taking risks at the casino. Loot boxes appear within many popular games, generating random prizes. Jennifer Palma has more on how they work and why researchers say they're dangerous. Catchy colors, sounds, and the potential to improve your gaming experiences. Loot boxes, they're everywhere in video games. They're a virtual item present in many video games now. And what happens is when the player acquires one or purchases one, they open it. And when they open it, it produces a randomly generated reward, something that they can use in the game. For some, loot boxes are highly valued, potentially hooking the player further into the game. Some boxes are free, others the player pays for. Leading this UBC researcher to say there may be a link between loot boxes and gambling. With loot boxes, you're making a wager by, say, purchasing the loot box, and you're receiving an uncertain award that might be more desirable than the dollar cost uh, the individual perceives it to be. The UBC study found 90% of participants opened a loot box in a game and that half reported spending money on them. The study also found regulators may need to get involved to keep addiction at bay. A social media expert weighs in. The World Health Organization last year classified that segment of gaming within the, uh, the dopamine effect, the idea that the reward center of the brain is engaging, and that's what's kind of fueling this part of the industry. Brooks says more research needs to be done before regulation can be enacted, but the report finds those at risk for problematic gambling are more likely to be drawn to loot boxes. The fact that there are associations with measures of gambling does indicate that there is some overlap, and this overlap needs to be further explored to determine what type of regulation, if any, is warranted. Jennifer Palma, Global News. Well, some Burnaby High School students are wrapping up four days of hands-on firefighter training. Since he's in, yell it out. Ready? Go! The grade 11 and 12 students were given a number of tasks, including fire hose operation, search and rescue, rappelling and life-saving skills, and going into a smoke-filled building in full gear with zero visibility. It's, it's so much fun. It's, it's such a way to learn so many things. You learn leadership, you learn um, communication, you learn organization, you just learn how to work as a team. And it's super fun and super rewarding. Lead your air. After this week has given me a good idea. And although it's really hard, like all the stuff they've been doing, it's not easy, but I think it's something that I do want to put the effort into in the future, for sure. Watch for the alligator. Yeah. <laughs> Finally, some good news for homeowners in Ontario, Quebec and New Brunswick. Although floodwaters are still high and might rise a bit more, in most places they have stabilized and residents are looking forward to drier days ahead.
the forecast for water flow uh, is that the uh, the Ottawa River will continue to rise uh, for perhaps another day. We should see the crest uh, uh, on one side of Ottawa and then the other side of Ottawa uh, within the next day or two. Adding to the cautious optimism, officials don't believe they'll see the second wave of flooding they saw back in 2017. Some royal child news tonight. It's almost a cruel joke, isn't it? <laughs> no, still nothing about Harry and Meghan's impending blessed event. The Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, William and Kate, have released three new pictures of Princess Charlotte to mark her fourth birthday, which is today. As with the pictures of Prince Louis for his first birthday last month, the photos of Charlotte were taken by Kate. Charlotte is the royal couple's middle child between five-year-old Prince George and one-year-old Louis, and she is fourth in line to the throne. Well, you know, as soon as we hear from Meghan and Harry... Uh, They'll text me. I'm sure they yeah, will. For sure. In Health Matters tonight, the NDP government says its new strategy has dramatically reduced waiting times for MRI scans, although the health ministry doesn't have detailed figures to back that up. Health Minister Adrian Dix says BC had the worst MRI wait time in Canada prior to 2017, but with more resources added to the program, 44,000 more exams were done in 2017-18, and he says a further $5.25 million is being added to increase exams again. We measure wait times in MRIs after the fact, so when, it's, when the appointment is made, and then when the MRI is delivered, which is uh, slightly different than the process we do for surgeries and other things. But uh, it's, it's pretty impressive. And building on that this year with another year of increase, we're going to see wait time numbers come down significantly again. And, uh, and that's, that's a positive thing in terms of treatment. A four-year-old girl clings to a rope made out of bed sheets after falling into a well in China. Her rescue right after the forecast. Brave guy to go down there. Okay, let's uh, check in with Christy right now and a look at our forecast. And uh, yeah, the sun continues a little bit through the clouds behind you there. Yes, it certainly was more cloudy today. 14 degrees at the airport and we only hit 17 further inland. Looks like the skies are opening up. The heavens are opening for someone down by the water there. Uh, but it was still okay day. We saw a few sprinkles earlier, but nothing to worry about. Generally speaking, we haven't had much rain, and that will continue to be the trend with this strong northerly flow, and that's helping to protect coastal regions. Uh, we've talked about it holding strong. Not only is it going to hold strong, this general pattern, but look at this. It's actually going to strengthen next week. Wait to see these temperatures. So areas near the water by Wednesday could be hitting 19 degrees, 23 degrees away from the water. And this might be a good time to remind you that pets and children are not safe in cars alone. Uh, outside temperature needs to be 20 degrees. In 10 minutes, it could reach 31. Uh, dangerous uh, temperatures. And of course, if it gets hotter, it, it gets warmer even quicker inside a car. All right. So here's a look at the next 24 hours. We're expecting snow. So while we're heating up across the south coast, it's still winter in through the BC Peace River area. Five centimeters of snow tonight and again tomorrow morning for 
for the Fort St. John region and a few showers expected in the afternoon hours, whereas the lower mainland, a little bit of a sprinkle possible again tomorrow morning, similar to what we saw today. However, tomorrow afternoon, I'm expecting more of a clearing. So there's the snow in the BC Peace River area. Dees Lake, we'll see that also. And down through the south, just a few showers from Vailmont down through the Columbia region. Otherwise, sunshine and warmth. And we'll see that here. Again, slight chance of showers tomorrow morning. And then we're in the clear and temperatures are going to soar. And I'll leave you with a stunning shot. This is joy. Not only is it joy as in the emotion, but this is joy. That mm -hmm. is joy there. <laughs> joy the joy the horse. The horse. horse. She's 27 years old. Oh, just a spring chicken. 27. I don't know in horse years. <laughs> that is. I just get a little off. Caught on video in China, the desperate actions to save a four-year-old girl who'd fallen into a deep well. <laughs> the girl fell in when she was outside with her sister, apparently hanging laundry. As they waited for firefighters to arrive, her family and neighbors made a rope out of bed sheets and threw it down the well. The rope and a bucket in the well also helped her stay above water. And after a few agonizing minutes, firefighters arrived. One of them squeezed down into the narrow well and brought the girl back up. She was not seriously hurt. Doctors say now she is in good condition. How old? Four years old. Yeah, incredible. And it's a that, long drop. A long drop and definitely narrow, right? Yeah, it looked really small. Swim at four. Most can't. No, that's true. All right, Squires here with sports. Canada's national team is ne hasn't been that good for a long time. but it, No, a very long time. Since the, the 80s. 80s? Oh, yeah. Are the prospects looking up, maybe? Well... <laughs> Alfonso Davies is, you know, a great young Canadian mm -hmm. player. So, you, you know, and if we get our team in the World Cup and we host part of it, yeah, it could be fun. But, no, it's not been as good since it was the 80s when we only made the World Cup once, only in our history once. Mm -hmm. That was in the 80s. Uh, the best Canadian ever to play for the Whitecaps in MLS is Alfonso Davies. I don't think there's any doubt of that. But the ones he has left behind haven't been too bad either. They may not get contract offers from big-time European clubs like he did, but what has been a dark cloud season so far for the Whitecaps? We have seen bright spots from Canadian players, like Daniil Hendry, who leads the team in scoring right now. It could be argued that if the Whitecaps got as much out of their international players as they have from their Canadian content this season, they wouldn't be looking up at most of the league in the MLS standings. Coach Mark DeSantos, who's from Montreal, has always championed Canadian players on his roster, giving them an opportunity that, frankly, they often don't get because of their birth certificate. You have to be incredibly special to be a player from Canada and be very, very valued. I hope that's going to change one day. I hope coaches are, are going to stop looking at flags and looking a little bit more at the quality and what that player brings to the team. Through ball, edge of the box and a chance for two. Oh, it's a big save by Crapo. The best example of a Canadian getting his shot is goalkeeper Maxime Crapeau, who basically, as an MLS rookie, won the starting job, a real rarity in this league for a Canadian. Crapeau has started eight of the nine matches so far and has proven he can play at this level. When you feel the trust of the, that staff, well, you know that you can 
enjoy yourself and express yourself the best you can be on the field and and that's important and and honestly we we felt this from from the staff max is a player that needed an opportunity and he had all the qualities as a goalkeeper he just needed an opportunity Russell Tybert is an original Whitecap, now in his ninth season. He's been a staple in the Whitecaps midfield for the past half dozen years, but he likes what his coach stands for when it comes to playing time. It doesn't matter where you're from. If you're doing what he asks of you, if you're following his style, his identity, and just trying to do the work and working for the team and putting in effort and working to your maximum, you're going to get an opportunity to play. He's a fair manager, and he's shown that uh, from the start of the season. I think that we're changing the culture of that. Um, well, at our club and at the national team level, um, we have a lot of quality here. Just need to start putting them in good places. People could remember me as a person that played a role to, to have that flag be an important flag one day, or a flag that is respected also in the world of soccer. All right. That is Nationwide Elite Arena in Columbus, Ohio. And that's a big hit by former Canuck Adam Clendenning on David Pasternak. But shortly after that hit, Pasternak gets up and he's all alone and he scores. And it's 1-0 for the Bruins. And they need this one because they're down 2-1 in the series. Okay, now penalty shot for Boone Jenner. He was tripped on a shorthanded break and he doesn't score. <clears throat> all right, shortly after that, Bruins power play. Patrice Bergeron scores. 2-0 now for the Bruins. Now here's a weird goal by Artemi Panarin of Columbus. This puck actually hits the netting above the glass, falls down, and he scores. But you can't review that. It should not have been a goal. The play should have stopped. But they still 2-1 Boston, and they are in the uh, third period now. Raptors... This series is tied 1-1 against Philadelphia. They're in Philly for game three. Well, what a move. Power from Kawhi. But Jimmy Butler. Alley-oop. Jam. 76ers lead it by the score of 71-57. Rory McIlroy at the Wells Fargo. Now watch this shot. He is between, well, he's in front of two trees. He's got to put it between the trees. That's hard enough. Now... He keeps it low enough, it gets under the branches, gets on the green, finds the right part of the green, and starts rolling towards the hole. I'll tell you right now, he's the co-leader in this event after one round at minus five. So this is for Bird. After that great shot, he's even laughing it's so great. And then for Birdie, oh, come on, man. Anyways, he is the leader. Nick Taylor, though, good start. He's at four under three time. Olympic medalist, 2018 world champion, Caitlin Osman, Newfoundland native, has retired from figure skating. Last member of Canada's golden era is off the ice. That included Patrick Chan, the teams of Moore and Virtue, Duhamel, and Radford, all world champions, all part of Canada's gold medal in the team skate at the 2018 Olympics. All right, thank you very much, Spar. New Orleans teenager Antoinette Love has a tough choice ahead of her, but it's the kind of dilemma most high school students would envy. The 18-year-old is being wooed by no fewer than 116 colleges with millions of dollars of scholarships attached. Another day, another stack of fan mail. 
college acceptance letters, all addressed to high school senior oh my goodness. Antoinette Love. You must feel sorry for the mailman. The 18-year-old <laughs> yep. from New Orleans has been accepted to 116 schools. Total scholarship offers? 3.7 million. 3.7 million dollars. Yes. The oldest of five children born when her parents were still teens. Yolanda and Anthony Love struggle to make ends meet, but here, love goes a long way. It makes me want to go back to school to mm -hmm. kind of get my GED just to try to keep up with keep. her. <laughs> Where are all these colleges coming from? I mean, I had to Google, let me tell you, Google has been my best friend for the last couple Where are of these months places? because I'm like, where are these schools? Antoinette wants to become a teacher herself and inspire the next generation. You can do whatever you want when you grow up. That feels amazing to know that I can be whatever I want to be. No matter which school she chooses, we'll all be the wiser. Kevin Tibbles, NBC News, New Orleans. $3.7 in scholarship money matches her GPA of three point. Seven, which isn't a four, but she's amazing and apparently very into a whole bunch of different organizations mm -hmm. and very engaged in the community. So. Okay. And amazing. she also has a part-time job. That's right. So there. Working hard. Oh, so you want to feel like you're an underachiever. Yeah. <laughs> Jeans Day. Don't forget Jeans Day. Oh, yeah, that's right. In support of BC Children's Hospital. <laughs> oh, we're going to show off your jeans. Yeah, jeans. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't yeah. get up any higher. We're, we wore <laughs> jean jackets to work. It's all good. It's all good. Okay. Thanks for watching, everybody. Have a good night.